Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years, and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from, and what drives them forward. I started cooking at when I was five years old. Understanding how something is made from nothing to something, especially with Indian cooking, there's like almost a zero waste policy. Everything has value. That's how I was brought up, basically. Nothing should be wasted. I think cooking really influenced the way that I approach my creativity and my design. For this episode, I sit down with Sital Solanki, the founder of Matter, a materials research studio, consultancy and school, who are on a mission to expand our understanding and impact of the everyday materials that surround us. This was recorded in our studios in Shoreditch. Welcome to Stories of Growth. Very excited to have you uh, on the show and um, keen to hear about your story of growth, obviously, uh, but more importantly, um, you know, where it all began. So maybe you could just start with a little introduction as to what you've been up to um, and more sort of what you might be known for. Sure. Uh, It's great to be here and... So what I'm known for is working with materials and working with materials and employing a more responsible approach to materials and integrating that within either, um, I guess, companies, brands, consulting or designing or kind of educating and opening up the dialogue around materials and the potential of them. And when we talk about materials, can we just, like, give me the basics? So the basics are your everyday wood metal plastics, but we're also looking at things such as bacteria as a material or digital materials or um, repurposing perhaps very traditional materials and their surplus streams and using them for a different purpose or a different function. Um, materials have many potentials and many uses and it's about learning what they can do and what they can provide and how they can envisage and create a positive economy, society, environment and policy because materials are kind of the glue between all, either all sectors or all industries. Everybody works with the material in some way, shape or form. We're never without materials, basically, because everything is made of something. And one, we're giving some, well, we're kind of opening up what that looks like, as well as how you can apply it in the near future, the immediate future and the far future. Because a lot of it's very much about how we kind of uh, approach it is very much starting with the identity of a material so rather than understanding it as its type like a glass plastic metal we want people to understand it uh, from how it functions and feels so does the material 
is it flexible? Is it transparent? Is it warm? Is it soft? These sorts of characteristics and behaviours and properties um, get you to understand how you can apply them and also start with the material first rather than understanding by type. You start to... You only introduce it towards the end of the design process. But if you understand how that material functions and feels, you you uh, start applying it from a material-first approach, which becomes a way more holistic way of designing or creating something. And then looking at life cycles of like how um, where the material comes from, its you know source basically. And then how is it currently being used? And then looking at how it degrades and then how it can be reused in some way or it does, does it not get reused because it's biodegradable and then goes back into the land. And then we look at how those materials can be applied, so looking at systems change. Um, and then that means could a material be designed for durability? So it, it goes into like we're looking at longevity then or does the material get designed in a more modular way or does the material show how versatile it is so an example I use is uh, seaweed it's a really great material uh, to be working with so very much like a chef uh, a chef can create a dish using one main ingredient um, say lamb three ways it's it's all about how it's processed or cooked um and then that changes the experience and the texture of that ingredient so it's very similar principle to material and how we design with them so seaweed can depending on how you process it can be turned into something very structural uh can be turned into a plastic alternative for biodegradable water bottles it can also be uh, a dye, it can be a fabric, it can be used for uh, architecture as insulation and fuel and food and all sorts of things. So it's really, it can be applied across pretty much all disciplines. Uh, so that's the versatility of a material. And then it can also be the last part of our systems approach is ability and that's very much about enabling people to be part of the that process so it's more about open source design basically so that's kind of how we work with materials and that's kind of our methodology and approach to working with them and getting people to kind of adopt that basically interesting and um, fascinating um where did this obsession if if I might call it that, mm -hmm. um, yeah, where did where did that begin? Um, I think it's always existed in some way, shape, or form. I've from a kid. Yeah, absolutely. Was there a moment of be like, oh, just this feel, this look, like? Tell me. I think it's dive a bit deeper. Well, I basically grew up in Leicester. That's where I was born, and grew up, growing up in a shop which my parents owned. There was always a natural curiosity as to what things are made of, like where they come from, like we're going to a cat and curry and how do those things get there and how are we then selling them? This kind of cycle. There's, that natural curiosity came, but then I started to 
I was always curious about what things are made of. That's always been my line of from inquiry. first thinking, just... Yeah, I think also from cooking. Like, I started cooking at when I was five years old. So, um, understanding how something is made from nothing to something. Ingredients. Yeah. Yeah, the final dish. Ingredients, like, especially with Indian cooking, there's, like, almost a zero-waste policy um, when creating a dish. Even, like emptying the tomato tins by rinsing it with water and then adding that back into the sauce or like masala that's been ground down into a blender and never really always making use of everything we've um, created or made with everything has value that's how I was brought up basically so nothing everything has value which means nothing should be wasted so I think cooking really influenced the way that I approach my creativity and my design work, even my work with materials. And then that sort of curiosity was kind of applied to textiles, which is what I studied. And that kind of harnessed a real hunger in me of like trying to understand how a textile was actually constructed and made and how can it be deconstructed and then remade or remade within outside of traditional practices such as uh, interiors and fashion which is what it's mainly known for and you know the age-old question of like oh what do you do for a living um and just even what's the response <laughs> so my response would be i'm a textile designer and then their response would be... Um, Wait, is this now or is this then? That was then, I would say. Now I kind of get called a scientist or a material scientist, and that's clearly not Sounds what I do. Yeah, it does, but I'm not qualified <laughs> to be that. Um, I don't know, this kind of misinterpretation or misrepresentation of a textile designer, like, oh, can you make me a dress, is the, is the basic response. And I'm like... Well, yes, I can do that. But Technically, I could. Yeah, but that I can also make a textile that could potentially power your home, you know, this kind of thing. So going on to do like a master's in uh, textile futures, which is what it was called then, now called material futures. That's Where was that? Central St. Martins. Um, that kind of catapulted me into this sphere of what I've been so curious about like really challenging what a textile can be and what things are made of and how textiles can be within architecture automotive or lighting or and that they're all the industries I ended up working in um and I worked within fashion as well and interiors and you know more traditional settings but I was really wanting to push the boundaries of textiles and materials and just by working within those sectors for about 12, 13 years before I began Matter allowed me to kind of understand it from other perspectives, basically. And also therefore work with uh, different specialists and experts such as software engineers or sound engineers or software developers and architects and fashion designers and get 
that sort of understanding of a more collaborative way of working as well and very interdisciplinary and but the frustration came when there was just a real lack of understanding of materials and textiles and how actually crucial they are within each of those processes or outputs. So and was that a moment that that frustration just peaked or was it it's something that's been bubbling for a while? It had been bubbling for a while and I think I got to the point where I was just like questioning everything and after been after having worked across those areas for so long over a decade I just kind of wanted to take my own stance on it and establish and rep- create a place for representation of textile designers and material designers. So really Massa was born out of frustration, I would say. And that kind of is a real motivator for me because growing up I never really felt... I'm kind of a minority in all aspects, I think. Like... Um, being a middle child, being from Leicester, the middle of England, like being always this middle person. And even being a textile designer, I was always this middle person that was kind of talking to production or design or, you know, factories. There was, there was always that kind of drive of trying to be noticed in a way or like understood, I think. There's sort of a misunderstanding and that kind of motivates me a lot of the time of like well did you know that this (laughs) (laughs) always bringing the facts (laughs) you think that's a middle child thing probably I mean I don't want to go on a tangent here but I was talking about it last week to a mate of mine who is a middle child and um I mean in terms of family dynamics exactly right it's just about you're not the first but you're obviously not the youngest and oh, which you know there can be more than three obviously mm-hmm. um and okay that's interesting so coming back to the i mean the, the frustration um maybe layering on the purpose to that in terms of environmental um political you know because certainly your work has that in you know in in its core mm-hmm. uh, so maybe sort of touch a little bit of where that drive and that you know the purpose layer came in terms of what you're doing with matter I think um, that always kind of existed in all the work that I've been doing and I felt like giving a purpose to textiles and materials was always my motivation not just about representation it's like they can achieve so much and I'm going to achieve so much positive change. Um, and, and that was from the offset? You always yeah, had that? Yeah, always. Um, and also the fact that, um, I guess, if you design with the material first, the output is way more sustainable, responsible. It feels like you can design with purpose, basically. Um, and I think... But it's... As, as you said, it starts with materials, you know, it starts with purpose. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And if that doesn't exist, then it, the... There's no point starting. Yeah, but the end of life is really problematic, I would say, of that product or service. Um, 
it it's not kind of considered in the design process and therefore the end of life is quite unsustainable. Who would you say is doing a good job at this? Ooh, um, I mean, a lot of the people that I've written about, I mean... For example, G.F. Smith, I think, have done a really great job with their extract paper, which is made from post-industrial, well, post-consumer coffee cups. And what they've done is taken that as their resource. They've separated the plastic lining that occurs in the middle, uh, in the center of the cup and separated those two layers because that's why these cups aren't recyclable. They've taken that plastic lining and ended up giving, selling that on or providing that to an electric cable company. They've taken that paper, re, uh, broken it down and reconstituted it into a, a new paper which is called extract. So they've achieved it at a large scale and it shows the possibility and the potential of this, um, especially from a manufacturing point of view. I think it's really admirable how they've kind of approached it and and it, it looks really premium as well. It doesn't look like a, you know, like a what you would kind of describe a sustainable paper to look like mm. it has a range of really wonderful bright colors not just like oh your granola sort of colors um like bamboo or what have mm. you um so that's really amazing and then you've got sort of designers on like a more craft level which are perhaps introducing new ways of making and manufacturing so self-production um, there's a designer called Fernando de la Pos, uh, Mexican-born but London-based. He's looking at corn husks as his material because that is normally disposed of and burnt. And considering that corn husks are a... Well, corn agriculture is the second largest crop grown in the world. And if they're burning all of the husks, that creates an insane amount of pollution. So he's kind of looking at it from a very bottom-up approach, working with um, the farmers in a very small village in Mexico where he's getting them to grow indigenous crops, native crops. So they have these incredible colours of purple and oranges and pinks and it's just so beautiful and it's a real shame for those to be just burnt and he's not only using that as his resource he's also looking at um, different ways of getting the farmers to produce for 12 months of the year not just for the seasonal crop so he's using that as a material for a veneer for interiors and it's quite beautiful I can show you in the book if you want um, and that natural natural texture and grain that's achieved with the crop is quite amazing and unexpected, I would say. And he's also getting the farmers to 
learn new skills with how to make these products within their farm. So therefore, like the six months of the rest of the year, they can actually produce these themselves and therefore gain an income. So that affects the economy and their society. Mm -hmm. And then obviously it automatically looks at policy um, because they're kind of working against GMO crop farmers, which are very, well, their neighbours in mm. a way. Sure. And whilst you find that, um, education key part, right? Just in terms of, as you said at the beginning, really understanding the materials that you go into the supply chain or into your design process or into, I mean, into the world. And um, where, and I see on your site, you have your studio, your consultancy and your school. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe just talk a little bit on that in terms of the schooling of matter. Um, really what the, it's necessarily about a goal or ambition. I think that's pretty clear, but like how important that is to you? Yeah, I think the school is a, an integral part to it, for this sure. It's great, by the way. Yeah, it's so beautiful. We're looking at the book, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, the school is integral to, I would say it's the connecting point throughout every service we provide. <clears throat> I mean, the school in, encompasses um, workshops, demonstrations, uh, talks, bringing more of an awareness to materials in the public realm as well as even clients ask us to provide um, workshops and talks for them, and that's mostly how um, and that's mostly how a project starts with a client, I guess. Mm. And knowing that everything is made of something, and um, knowing that everybody works with the material, and <clears throat> it's really important to bring that awareness to almost the current language of materials which is changing and ever-changing and how it kind of impacts them how does it impact their daily lives how will it impact the future <clears throat> all of these sorts of questions are really important to understand so they can also perhaps change their behavior and how they're either buying things or consuming things and that has a direct impact in their everyday lifestyles as well as the longer term future and it's trying to connect that basically with people so you run where do you run your schools not your school schools your sessions shall we say workshops um, well we get invited to um present depending on it could be in-house for a client it could be in different in institutions around the world which I get invited to do last week I was in Hereford the previous week I was in York I've been to Bali I've been to Iceland so it all depends really mm. um, we don't have a permanent space to be able to do that but I think that's something that I'm quite keen on actually hosting at some point maybe we should talk about that yeah because I think it'd be really great to do like um um, like a summer school and a winter school, like something outside of the academic calendar, basically. 100%. So just coming or building mm. on that, in terms of 
I mean, I can like that's how you show up. It's kind of preschool, like matter preschool. <laughs> I, that's quite fun, <laughs> right? It's like this is all of the things you thought you knew about everything on this table, for example, that you don't know, that you should know, that you should might consider if you're going to build something out of marble or plastic or glass mm-hmm. or rubber, and obviously based on who the audience is and how relevant each of those materials are. But I know, I, I think, it, I mean, it's fascinating that that from a beginning and a start is where everything should start and your point of end life, end life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, factoring that into, what do they call it, manufacturing? Meantime before failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, designed obsolescence. And the, you know, the impact that is creating that obviously with consumer behaviors, consumer understanding shifting to me feels this is only become more important, which I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're seeing. So, I mean, really the question there is what, I mean, how are you seeing that shifting in the work or the requests or the businesses or the brands how is that showing up in your world in terms of the depth or the detail of those requests that are coming to you? Hmm. In so many different forms and lives, I think, and guises, because <clears throat> we're getting approached by so many different ends of the spectrum within industry, whether it's technology or whether it's sportswear or whether it's fashion, architecture, food even. And I think there's a real... But what's that brief? I mean, just basically. How do, we come, how do we become more sustainable? How do we become sustainable? So basically, either we're working with those brands or companies or individuals of how to perhaps reposition them to become sustainable or even get them towards thinking about sustainability. Um, or we're working with them even they might already have a sustainable agenda, but they want to become more sustainable. And they're really seeing it from their customers. Their customers are demanding it some of the time. And that's that for me is like really encouraging to see because if a brand or a company can change based on their customer needs and that's what they're demanding, amazing. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Um, it's happening it's happening and the conversations are incredibly exciting and so optimistic and that's my outlook with it it's like optimism that's always the the driver and it's that's our narrative and it's like you know some of these materials I think have such an aesthetic quality to them they look beautiful and that already has changed the language of sustainable materials and what they can achieve and that I think is the the aesthetics are kind of important for a lot of these brands and companies because they don't want this product or service or whatever they're producing to compromise on that is greenwashing in your vocabulary (laughs) there's a lot of that going on (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you are an optimistic person. You said it yourself. Like, <laughs> but is there a boundary to your optimism in terms of working with brands or partners? 
What do you mean by boundaries in terms of like? I mean, would are there people you wouldn't work with? Oh. Obviously, asking it in the right context without naming names, but is there? A, I I guess the question is, we all know. We'd like to think we all know there is, you know, some big questions around sustainability, and we can all do better. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any company, you know, inact- inactive, um, uh, you know, development today that isn't really asking that question. It, it really is then the question is one of historical performance versus future ambitions, and yeah, where you draw that line of an of an inbound inquiry of CTEL, can you come and help us? Maybe. That you might be think, think yeah. twice about. Arms dealers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those guys. More sustainable guns. <laughs> that is, no. Okay, got it. <laughs> Drug dealers whilst yeah, we're at it? Yeah, okay. you know. In the more legal side of business versus the illegal side of business. <laughs> Uh, yeah, arms dealers, no way. But, okay. like, a lot of funding can come from that, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, we're working with Saudi Arabia at the moment, and that's through the British Council. And obviously that's in some ways a bit controversial with things that are happening there. But from from a cultural point of view, what's happening there is really quite life-changing, I would say. I've been there twice now, and... So two years in a row. And the first year I went, it felt a little bit... Well, I didn't know what to expect, first of all. And obviously there was a bit of apprehension, but at the same time, being with the British Council there, they put you at ease and obviously, you know, give you guidance. But what I saw was a real hunger and thirst of the youth being really curious about what can they do to create a better lifestyle for themselves? What can they do to make positive impact? Um, knowing that also 70% of the population there is under 30, is, well, you know, they have the majority. They can make this change in a really dramatic way. And they're very active. And I feel like that sort of attitude feels... Some of that we can learn from here, I would say. I think... In what sense? In terms of, like, motivation and, like, acting on something, not just talking about it. Mm Because it feels like a lot of them are doing and not just talking. And you were running a workshop there. This was explaining who you are and what you do? Yeah, I did some talks uh, during Saudi Design Week and then... Also running some workshops, material making workshops and also design thinking workshops around materials and looking at materials from a multi-sensory point of view and not just aesthetic point of view. Mm. Um, So yeah, it was really exciting. And also that builds like a, a vocabulary and a language of how they can start to describe some of these materials or work with them. So understanding how they can function and how they can also, with that kind of vocabulary, you can then start to understand it of how you can apply it within multiple applications or sectors and not just the usual or the norm, basically. Mm. A general 
question of these workshops. What is the average level of understanding of materials? <laughs> uh, Honest answer. <laughs> out, out of ten. Mm. Three? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning <Four>. two? <laughs> low. Yeah, very low. And it's kind of troubling, I find. I mean, this is motivating as well, right? <laughs> yeah. In terms of mission to bring it up from a three or a four. Yeah, I mean, ideally it should be nearer to the sevens yeah. and the eights. But I don't know. I feel like there's a there's kind of a lack of education, I think, with materials within formal education and, I guess, informal education. Well, where would that sit? I think there should be a material I person. mean, other than you building your old school, yeah. which maybe is in the plan, maybe should be on the plan, <laughs> um, why, what, what faculty would you go to learn materials? I think it should be in every single department. <laughs> right answer <laughs> everywhere yeah absolutely okay so like your foundation year at college that it would be part of it all throughout your school curriculum absolutely even in primary school yeah. like my niece who's five she's been taught about materials now yeah. i'm like yes this is great you know it's and being taught that and she's asking me about things and like that I don't know. So what school would you give your niece? Oh, she would be more like five and six. Okay, like. okay. <laughs> I've got a five-year-old as well. So yeah, I think, yeah, there's, it's definitely there whether it's explicitly included or not. I, yeah. Yeah, because I don't think it needs to be that explicit. I think it's also just getting it's people part to... part of everything. Absolutely. Like digital. Yeah. I think it should just be ingrained, not necessarily a separate subject. It should just be part of it. Yeah. Coming back to your childhood, your upbringing um, in the Midlands as a middle child. <laughs> um, tell me, give me a bit more on that that world and some of the influences or your parents or your friends just just really trying to get an understanding of this you know your early motivations and you talked about food and you, the, the culture that obviously comes with it and the sustainability but uh maybe just talk a little bit more about that mm. in terms of that world sure um in that time yeah so this is in the 80s and good time yeah <laughs> One of the best eras, I would say. But I think a lot of those influences, in hindsight, even though I hated it at the time, came from a very... Sorry, what did you hate? Like, um, yeah. (laughs) All of those middle things. (laughs) I uh, kind of being like... uh, Like, my family was a very spiritual family and, and still are. And so being kind of exposed to um, gatherings of like praying and doing sort of godly, godlike rituals and um, knowing that there was a spiritual focus really kind of allowed me to question things like 
main one of the main questions in our household was um also bringing being brought up in a household of six as we lived with our grandparents as well so my sister older than me my brother's younger than me um and my parents so this household of six we were always kind of eating together you know praying together that kind of thing and I'm not a religious person but being forced to kind of be involved in this um you're obviously one I was questioning what am I doing here and why am I here as a kid you just don't want to be part of it and the main question that was being was brought up in our household was who are you and who are you trying to be and you know very trying to very much trying to get to your soul and I think our culture Hindu culture is very much about everybody has a role in this world and your journey is about trying to understand what that role is and what that purpose is in the world basically and this being like underlying or an undercurrent not really as a conscious thing um was always kind of surfacing I guess as I was growing up um this is around the dinner table yeah a lot of the time I'm just trying to picture it yeah dinner table even but that sort of direct line of questioning was always present always and even um yeah so every Saturday would be like a almost all our family would gather around the in the lounge and like do like weekly prayers basically just to uplift spirits and be positive basically so it was a weekly thing and a daily thing around the dinner table like very philosophical conversations but that's through my granddad um was that religious or was that just family community and bonding I think uh, all of the above, I would say. Um, but for me, I don't really see it as a religion. I see it as more of a, you know, a lifestyle thing. More like how, what is the word? I mean, you say it's a philosophy. Yeah, it's just a absolutely. Word absolutely. Yeah. And that sort of philosophical thinking has really channeled some of my own approaches to my practice as well as my own life even things as like simple things such as um never throwing things away like you know you get these plastic takeaway uh containers Mm -hmm. from Chinese restaurants or Indian restaurants it's my mom has a huge cupboard just full of those and it's bursting at the seams so she will never get rid of it but then there crosses the line of like hoarding and also like not throwing things away and that's a real that's difficult (laughs) (laughs) surely she requires a workshop from her daughter to honestly benefits of recycling (laughs) she goes to extreme lengths i mean a lot of people might resonate she can bring them to our pop-up downstairs That we're currently bringing or inviting people to bring their recycled plastic. Oh, really? So they can turn them into um, uh, brushes. Uh, Toothbrushes. Toothbrushes. They're, they're makeup. Coal creative. Okay. Downstairs. So they make recycled uh, brushes, makeup brushes. From 
um, disused plastic. From recycled plastic. Great. So that's happening. There you go. You should pop My in on the way out. Like Bring it, ask your mom. She'd like drive up. And it's like, here you go, guys. <laughs> go crazy. But like even like, I don't know, some people might resonate with this. Um, like an ice cream tub, like hot door ice cream or something. That would be filled with like a dal or something like that and put in the freezer. So you go in the freezer and expect to have ice cream. But no, it's like a chicken curry or like a dal. Um, it's it's those things that like amuse me, but also I admire so much. <laughs> That's so good. And I haven't. My mum's just the same, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so Maybe brilliant. Not dull, and I, but, yeah. <laughs> but like I I do this now. So, oh, you do. Yeah, it? like it's infectious, I guess. <laughs> well, it's it's right. I mean, it, it's not. There's no right or wrong. It's it's understandable in terms of a behaviour or a, the practicality of it as well. Um, yeah. Certainly if you're bringing it back to you recycling or reusing or whatever other reword you want to you know, add in, um, it's it's definitely got to be the way forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite a traditional practice in a way. Like... Yeah. Um, so talking more about the future... <clears throat> um, in your optimistic lens, where where are we going? And there's a lot of negativity and a lot of doom around our planet and the people in charge and what isn't happening. Um, so let's not talk about that. Mm-hmm. L- let's talk about the more sunny side of things in terms of what is you know, what is working and, you know, what is changing in terms of that, that future? I think what is changing is, one, the narrative is changing <clears throat> around how people can adopt a more responsive, well, they can have more responsible choices and that already is opened up and it's not, before, I think a few years ago, it was seen as uncool to be sustainable. And now knowing that we've got less than 12 years to save the planet, the urgency is quite extreme. And I think there's so many more people working, not in silos anymore. I think people are working more collaboratively and using their expert knowledge and skills to be able to kind of take this the next step to actually implement it. And I think that is how it should be. And that's what we've been missing. Like this kind of taking down the guards, being less ego driven and actually not creating just for humans. It's like, you know, the impact is much greater than just human scale. It's planetary scale so just that kind of humility is kind of being added into that kind of conversation as well which I am quite a fan of and it's not human-centered anymore well it's getting towards that way Um, and the kind of I guess the implementation of it all people are changing the way things are manufactured or they're at least trying to acknowledge that there needs to be a change and a shift 
And, you know, people like IKEA and Unilever have set a target of 2025 or 2030 is when we'll want to become fully sustainable or 100% sustainable. I mean, they're quite ambitious goals and it's quite it's quite difficult to see how that can change that quickly, but knowing that people are placing agendas within their businesses is a really great thing, but I think they need to be mindful as to how achievable that is. Materials is definitely um, a driving force within that, um, but I think, yeah, it just needs to be done in a responsible way because I think what might happen is they might think there's a universal solution for everything. There's a universal solution for plastic, but I actually don't think that exists. And I think that's where our problem lies, is that there isn't one solution for every single country on this planet. And going back to understanding where things come from, how far away is it, how local is it, how can it be produced, can it be produced locally? Um, the local scale is really important, but how local do you go? But this this idea of universal materials is less, it's not becoming a thing anymore. And mm. I think that's really where we need to be rethinking things. Yeah, I get that. And also the younger generation coming through, you know, as per last Friday with the school kids, mm-hmm. you know, taking their day off school just yep. to protest and imagining, I mean, that's a stretch, imagining that in the 80s. <laughs> um, it just wouldn't even be any on any, in any agenda anywhere. So I think on my side, that's certainly what gives you hope. Absolutely. Um, that they are self-initiating and self-organising around something that's so important. Yeah. Uh, and I think to me would be really is now really what's what's going to change off the back of that and they are definitely well educated and be interesting if you've ever done any of your matter schools with the kids um, you know their level of understanding of these materials mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think that's where it's got a it's not the answer but it's definitely you know going in the right direction Absolutely. I think even, well, Greta, who's a 16-year-old activist, she's such a remarkable person to be able to champion a lot of this and yeah. get people to, you know, be activists in we this. just ask the question, right? Exactly. That's where it starts. Yeah, and that already encourages way more curiosity within them. And, they, and therefore, you know, they kind of blaming us of the damage we're doing to them and they're the future. How are they going to sustain themselves? And if we're keeping we're keeping on designing for the future, they are the future. So mm-hmm. how do we acknowledge that, recognise it, as well as change it? Yep, 100%. Mm-hmm. Two final questions. Um, what's the best way of someone getting in contact with you? Uh, you can look on our Instagram. I think that's a really great place to understand what we're doing currently. So that's at ma underscore tt underscore er. Or just go to our website, uh, 
hyphen tt hyphen er.org and there's an email address you can get in touch with us on and final question in terms of who would you like to hear from on the show i think um it doesn't have to be one person <laughs> well actually uh, a woman punam duffa she's um created this supper club called yes mates and just meeting her recently there's so many synergies of like this idea of spirituality and sustainability and she's doing that through indian food and even just those very small almost life hacks that she introduces within the kitchen like the tomato tin rinsing that out and creating you know a zero waste policy in a way but i think she's a really great advocate of culture and how that kind of her own culture and how that's kind of creating her identity and how that's kind of echoing different traditions and how that's kind of progressing our future or like what does that mean for our societies and becoming more inclusive and she wants more diversity to be acknowledged i think she's Sounds quite interesting yeah. look her up sita mm. thank you so much it's been a great conversation um and yeah looking forward to tracking your progress as you go great thanks so much for having me no worries